crisis in India is becoming more devastating by the hour. Social media ने इस पूरे pandemic में अपनी जो भूमिका निभाई है हम You shut down those posts. You don't let people see them. कोरोना काल की इस आपदा में सोशल मीडिया भी लोगों के लिए एक बड़ा सहारा बना हुआ है. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at the Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. Here are the media stories we're examining this week. India is now the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic, but the Modi government is out to quell the criticism it's been getting on social media. Not content with throwing Alexei Navalny behind bars, Russia is now using its legal system to put Navalny's entire organization out of business. The Rwandan story that got the Hollywood treatment. The hotel manager they called a hero who now stands accused. And shaming the culture of shame. Hey, hey, you're a lady. That Arab women can live without. Last week, we reported how India, engulfed in a brutal second wave of COVID-19, had set a new world record for the most new infections in one 24-hour period. There's no getting away from this story, because this past week, that record was broken yet again. Nearly 380,000 new cases in a single day. India's healthcare system is in a state of collapse. People have been left to die outside of hospitals they cannot get into, due to a lack of beds and oxygen. So citizens have been turning to social media, desperately searching for the care that they or their loved ones need to survive. However, they're up against a government that is obsessed with appearances, the PR side of this story. And while online posts pleading for medical help are permitted, criticism of the state's handling of the pandemic is not. And social media companies are complying. They're geo-blocking those critical posts. Access to the huge, lucrative Indian market appears to be more important to them than the welfare or the rights of the people in that market. Our starting point this week, once again, is New Delhi. Dateline New Delhi, but it could be anywhere in India. A man takes his infected wife to the hospital. She lies in the ambulance. A hand pump helps keep her breathing as he begs for a bed. The medical care she needs to survive, but the hospital is already overflowing. Where do people like them go? Online, to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, asking for the help that the state has failed to provide. Social media is actually working as in almost in lieu of the state. Millions of people are on social media every single second asking for plasma donations, emergency medication beds, oxygen cylinders, ventilators, what have you. And social media, people have been able to harness it to provide whatever little help people are getting out there. Why Twitter has become this platform is because uh, there's not even a centralized phone number where somebody can call and say that, okay, we need a bed. States have started now rolling out their phone numbers and things like that. But that is why uh, people have become activists helping out others because the state has failed to help out people. But when social media users cross the government's red line and share a hashtag about their prime minister and this pandemic, Modi made disaster, the authorities have demanded that Twitter block those posts. Twitter took down more than 50 of them, 
posts that Prime Minister Narendra Modi's BJP government said could incite panic and hinder efforts to contain the pandemic. Among those censored, a member of national parliament, a minister in West Bengal, Bollywood filmmakers and an actor. These posts on social media weren't rude or obscene. They just challenged the government. The reason Modi's name is in these hashtags is because it was his government and his party that said weeks ago that they had defeated coronavirus. But the reality is clear to us all now. So who else will disillusioned people hold accountable? If not the prime minister, then who else? Most of the posts that I saw were criticism of the government and their handling of the government. Uh, you know, it was not hate speech, it was not misinformation. Uh, it was not against any of the platform guidelines. It was shocking that the platform went ahead and took them down. In justifying its decision to comply, Twitter said, when we receive a valid legal request, we review it under both the Twitter rules and local law. If it is determined to be illegal in a particular jurisdiction, but not in violation of the Twitter rules, we may withhold access to the content in India only, which is why the posts can still be seen outside the country, not inside. As for Facebook, it temporarily blocked posts with the hashtag ResignModi, without even being ordered to do so by the government. India is the platform's biggest market, more than 400 million users, and neither Facebook nor Twitter have been known for standing up to New Delhi. Facebook's uh, transparency report in 2019 showed that India is only second to the United States in asking Facebook to uh, take down posts. Facebook has complied 53% of the times. <laughs> In February this year, there was farmers' protests happening. They asked Twitter to take down 1,178 posts. And while Twitter tried to uh, stick to its freedom of expression stand, it ultimately caved in and blocked 97% of the posts that the government had asked it to. These social media these social media giants talk about upholding democratic values and giving people a voice. But the truth is that they view every user as a consumer, first and foremost. Their own business and growth are their top priorities. Their second priority is their safety. The regulations stipulate that these companies must have local offices and staff. So when there is pressure from the government, these companies need to think not just about their revenues and business, but also about actual security. Indians have grown disproportionately reliant on social media during this pandemic, since they cannot count on their mainstream news outlets that are either ideologically aligned with Modi's BJP, intimidated by it, or are too dependent on government ad revenues to risk losing that money. That has underlined the importance of local outlets, alternative news sources. Those journalists make a fraction of what India's big money anchors do. And unlike the vast majority of those talking heads, local journalists have been known to actually leave the studio. Some have paid the ultimate price.
mainstream news channels a lot of them have become mouthpieces of the government but india still has publications websites that are doing an exemplary job of documenting what's going on in the country those reporters so many people from the fraternity who've lost their lives in the last 2 uh, or 3 weeks uh, journalists were not declared frontline workers and they were not being able to avail of the vaccine and even so every single day they are reporting from crematoriums from hospitals and i do not want to take away from the absolute stellar work that they are doing while doing that they will also be engaged on twitter and other social media platforms uh trying to arrange help for people who are directly contacting them responding to sos calls this is a kind of crisis reporting that goes beyond what we have seen in wartime reporting especially social media has brought this kind of a new reporting where we see journalists just not reporting but also trying to help people Every morning in India we're waking up to news that someone we know has died. International media have been going hard on this story, often picking up on the work local journalists do. Each one of those fires is a coronavirus death. And they are pulling few punches on the prime minister and the issue of accountability. As people continue to die because of a lack of hospital beds and oxygen, those outlets recognize quality journalism, important information when they see it. and there are too many national news channels in india where they are just not finding it ye do duniya hai ek duniya hai jahan mainstream media hai these are two different worlds one on mainstream media and one on social media so whenever the prime minister speaks those images and words push all other news off the tv screens they have this supreme confidence that if news of covid is minimized and people might actually believe no one is dying of covid in india on social media you will not only see resentment and anger but also empathy and people coming together the same social media platforms that have been known for obscene trolling bullying and vulgarity today those sites are also filled with examples of brotherhood compassion and humanitarian effort people are using their keyboards and cursors to reach out and connect to hold each other up at this time it's not like anything we've seen online before first the russian authorities came for alexei navalny the country's leading opposition figure then they went after members of his team the people who produce political documentaries critical of the kremlin and now they've put his organization in the dock. Johanna Hoos has been following this story for us. Joe, walk us through the Kremlin's latest efforts to silence all things Navalny. Well, this past week, Richard, Russian prosecutors suspended all activities of Navalny's anti-corruption foundation, the FBK. As a result, that organization is now banned from staging any sort of opposition rallies or participating in any kind of political activities. Now all of this is going on whilst Russians are also awaiting another court ruling which could effectively outlaw the FBK entirely by deeming it an extremist organization a term that so far Russia has reserved for organizations like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. 
Now, prosecutors have called for uh, this extremist label after they accused the FBK of, and I quote, altering the foundations of the constitutional order, whatever that may mean. Uh, but critics are warning that any such designation could constitute an assault on the freedom of speech of any Russian activist or uh, dissident. And what actual evidence is this court considering in this case of alleged extremism? Well, that's the thing. Nobody really knows. It's definitely no coincidence that these court hearings are taking place behind closed doors, that the evidence is kept secret, as it supposedly pertains to state security. But if uh, this case does result in a guilty verdict, which, by the way, is a bit of a foregone conclusion, that could mean lengthy prison sentences for Navalny's staffers and even some of his supporters. Now, Navalny himself has been in prison for uh, the last three months after having been sentenced to two and a half years in prison. But it's clear the authorities aren't stopping there. And is that because the Kremlin fears the investigative journalism, the political documentaries that Navalny's team has been producing? Well, that is definitely what sets Navalny apart from, say, your average uh, opposition figure, right? His anti-corruption foundation has been producing documentaries for more than a decade, investigating Putin's inner circle, his personal wealth. Uh, and their latest documentary is called Putin's Palace, and that racked up more than 100 million views. But these new restrictions on the FBK mean that uh, that organization can now no longer post anything online. And if the court does rule that the FBK is indeed an extremist organization, then even sharing their content or linking to their articles or videos could be deemed a criminal offense, which could be problematic for Russian journalists reporting on this story. Okay, thanks, Joe. Turning now to a story that first made news more than 25 years ago, was then made into a Hollywood movie and has since been turned on its head, or has it? Paul Rusesa Begina is a former hotel manager from Rwanda. He was featured in a book about the 1994 genocide. In that book, he claimed to have helped save the lives of more than 1,000 Tutsis and moderate Hutus. The book was then turned into an Oscar-nominated film called Hotel Rwanda. Rusesa Begina left the country after the genocide. In exile, he turned into a persistent critic of the Rwandan president, Paul Kagame, Last year, he was lured onto a flight to Rwanda, where he was arrested and put on trial for terrorism. This would not be the first time that an author or a filmmaker got the story wrong. But is this one of those cases? Or is it the story of an increasingly autocratic government going after one of its critics? The Listening Post's Nick Muirhead now on Rusesa Begina, the dissident or the terrorist, depending on where you get your news. The rainy season has arrived in Kigali. For many Rwandans, it brings back painful memories. Because 27 years ago, when the rains came, a genocide followed. An estimated 800,000 Tutsis and moderate Hutus were murdered by Hutu militias in just 100 days. But amidst the bloodshed came tales of bravery. Like the story of hotelier Paul Rusesa Begina, who reportedly saved more than a thousand lives by sheltering Rwandans at the Hotel de Mille Colline. A story of heroism so compelling, it got the Hollywood treatment. When Hotel Rwanda was screened in Kigali with President Paul Kagame in attendance, the film's director said it was received with raw emotion. 
So how has it come to this? Paul Rusesa Begina is now in jail, facing nine charges related to terrorism. But is the one-time hero of Hotel Rwanda a terrorist brought to justice or a government critic being silenced? My own theory is that it boils down to sending out a message um, to anyone who dares to stand up to Paul Kagame. Is he a Kagame critic? I suppose he is, yeah. Of course he is. But that's not the only thing he is. Look at the, the counts that he's being accused of. He's, I don't see anyone accusing him of criticizing the president. Did you, did you? Terrorism, arson, murder, starting a rebel organization. Those charges relate to Recessa Begina's support and alleged involvement with a militant group that has carried out violent attacks in Rwanda in recent years. But to understand how a man largely revered by journalists in the West... He was the hero who's depicted as the hero in the... Hollywood and reviled by many journalists in Rwanda. Paul Sabadina had no role in rescuing the people. No one is beyond the reach of justice. We need to go back to just after the genocide. In 1995, an American journalist named Philip Gorovich traveled to Rwanda to try to piece together what had happened. He wrote a book which claimed that Rusesa Begina used charm, deception and a bit of bribery to protect the Hotel de Mille Colline and those hiding in it from attack. When a country descended into madness, one man had to make a choice. In 2004, Rusesa Begina's story, as detailed in Gorovich's book, was turned into an Oscar-nominated film. United Artists presents the true story of a man who fought impossible odds. I cannot leave these people to die. <laughs> to save everyone he could. Hotel Rwanda was co-written, produced and directed by Terry George. Terry, as one of the writers of the screenplay for Hotel Rwanda, as well as the film's director, what kind of research did you do in order to fact-check Gorevich's account of what had happened? Well, it's a movie. You compress facts and sometimes you compress characters. But I did extensive research. I flew to Kigali with Paul, stayed at the Mikulin, and interviewed many of the survivors from the Mikulin, traveled the country, visited the genocide sites, and on the basis of that, verified what had taken place in April 1994. Three years after the release of Hotel Rwanda, Rusesa Begina published his own version of events in an autobiography he titled An Ordinary Man. In it, he took aim at Paul Kagame, who by that stage had been Rwanda's president for more than a decade. Kagame is largely credited with bringing Rwanda back from the brink of collapse after the genocide. However, critics say that he has done so with an iron fist and aggressively goes after dissidents. It was after the release of Paul Rusesa Begina's book, uh, where he called Kagame a dictator, that Terry George says that he started seeing what he describes as revisionist criticism of the film. Survivors coming forward and saying, Rusesa Begina was no hero. He charged guests to stay at the hotel. He withheld food and water from those who couldn't afford to pay. There were even stories that he turned some Rwandans away at the hotel gates. It was only after Ordinary Man uh, that this sort of mobilization of other survivors from the Milikaline, et cetera, that, that was pulled together uh, to put out these various articles and book about how the movie was, in fact, lies. 
And you can see that this was a fairly well-organized campaign. And that, along with what has taken place in Rwanda, particularly towards the president and the government's relationship to opposition figures, shows that it's all part of a policy of uh, of repression, frankly. A lot of the stories have, have changed with the passage of the years. And I, the Rwanda that I've come to know is one in which, if you don't agree with the government of the day, you are going to have problems. It is a country where there is no freedom of speech permitted, where most of the newspapers just sort of echo a chorus of sycophantic praise for the president. And if the signal has gone out from the presidency that this man is an enemy of the state, he's no hero, you'd be a very brave person in, in Kigali to stand up and say, no, it's thanks to this man, you know, that I owe not only my life, but my family's life. However, there is a different side to the story, one that has just emerged. During the genocide, France was an ally of the then Hutu government, and its alleged complicity in the killing has long been a subject of debate. Last month, French historian Vincent Duclair released a report which said that French officials warned the Hutu government not to attack the Mille Collines, because doing so would risk drawing UN troops into a fight. In other words, the survival of those at the hotel had very little to do with Recessa Begina, because Hutu forces chose not to attack the Mil Collines. Hotel de Mil Collines is a hotel in the middle of the genocide against the Tutsi that is being used by the government of Rwanda to prevent the UN from sending more troops. And they showcase it as a safe haven for Tutsi. So basically, the Hotel de Mil Collines is at the center of geopolitical gamble to protect, to preserve the genocide government. So Ruizabagina, in the real story, is a small-time guy. Hotel Rwanda was affected by Rusa Sabagina himself after the film was produced. Go inside the hotel. He behaved differently and was he's portrayed in the movie. Rusa Sabagina resisted the killing of his guests, but he sided with the killers after the production of the film. So he's the one who soiled the substance of the movie. The so-called revisionist criticism of Hotel Rwanda may be an effort to discredit Rusesa Begina so that a terrorism conviction will stick with less fuss. But that does not mean, necessarily, that he is innocent of the crimes he is accused of. This is a complicated story in need of full transparency, which is why the trial of Paul Rusesa Begina is being televised. The essence of, uh, of having the trial televised is for everyone to see what is happening in the courtroom and the judgment uh, would be maybe in the in the ears and the eyes of the beholder. The Rwandan government obviously thinks that um, the uh, this trial is going to um, show Rwandan justice in a very flattering light. Uh, after all they wouldn't have televised it. Paul Rusesabagina himself has withdrawn from the trial because he says it's now obvious that he's not gonna get a fair trial. I think the outside world may judge it uh, in a slightly different light. The trial of Paul Rusabagina is not televised for Rwandans necessarily or only. It's being televised for the West, as a matter of fact. We don't have the practice of televising trials. 
This is being televised to prove the Terry Georges and the journalists of this world wrong. And finally, there's a word in Arabic that is drummed deep into Arab children, especially girls and young women. That word is Aib, which roughly translates to shameful, and it gets a lot of use. Why are you dressed like that? Aib. Why are you attracting attention to yourself? Aib. Don't disrespect your elders. Aib. One Palestinian vlogger, Haifa Beseso, decided to reclaim the word by producing a rap video that enumerates the many and often contradictory social faux pas that Arab women must navigate. We'll leave you with that video now, and we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. <laughs> ويا ويلك لو ضحك كتير ويا ويل لو صوتك عالي في الشارع الشارع للشباب مش للبنات يلا يلا جوا اطبخي الكباب تفكيرك انت اللي عيب